Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our next-gen pastor, Myron Jellison, for this week's message. Well, hey, what's up, friends? Psyched that you're with us, uh, tuning in wherever you're tuning in from. And we're continuing our study through the book of Mark, and we're almost there. We've been spending uh, the last, I don't know how many weeks, and even a month and a half or so, or two months, on one week of human history. And in particular, this event, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, we're really going to hone in on this, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's, who we have been studying, his life, his ministry, everything Jesus-related through the book of Mark. And that's what we've been doing. And, and, and just so we understand why this is such a big deal, one third of all the gospels, which the gospels are the first four books of the Bible, they're the accounts of Jesus's life ministry. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the books. One third of them is centered around this historical event of the crucifixion of him and the resurrection of Jesus. And one third of those books is focused on this. So we're gonna spend some weeks and we have been on this event in history. And before we dive in and look at one character, he's kind of just a really small part, like a cameo role in this whole massive historical event. His name is uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Before we look at him and his part and his, his small part, but not insignificant part, I want to recap the gospel. Chris Figueroa, last week, the lead pastor, presented the gospel so clearly, but I just want to kind of highlight that again, because that's why we're spending so much time on this passage or on this event is because it's so significant and has implications for eternity for you and I. And the gospel simply just means the good news. And so when I think about the gospel, the gospel is this, it is a, it's a substitution. It's a substitution that Jesus took our place on the cross. He was the substitute. He atoned. He, he died on our behalf. And what he did is he took the sin of us, you and I, took the sin of the world on himself. And in return, the substitution was putting his righteousness on us so that we could then be in relationship with God. And so when God looks at us, if we've made the decision to follow Christ, we've made the decision to put our faith in him and accept the sacrifice on that cross for the forgiveness of our sins, if we've stepped across that line, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees Jesus kind of silhouetting you. He sees his son on you, covering you for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's what the gospel means. That's the good news, that you couldn't have earned your way. You couldn't have done anything to make yourself better, a good enough person. But him, Jesus himself, God in human flesh, sent his son to pay the penalty as a substitution for you so you could be free, forgiven, and, and, and reunited with your heavenly father, your creator, God of the universe. And so to understand this good news, we have to understand something about ourselves. We have to understand the magnitude of the mess that we are in because of our sin. And until we realize that we're sinners, until we realize we're totally depraved of anything good and we can never be good enough, until we understand that fundamental thing about the gospel, we will never be able to accept Jesus as the atonement or the substitution in our place. And to accept the good news, you have to realize the truth about you and how sinful you and how sinful I and how sinful we, humanity, really is. So I wanna take us to three passages in the New Testament before we get into the book of Mark and look at our section I wanna go through these three passages real quick. First one's in Ephesians 5. It says this, for this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ 
and of God. He has no inheritance. Let no one be deceived, deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes to those who are disobedient. No immoral, no greedy person, no idolater has an inheritance with God, has no relationship with God. And there is judgment. There is God's wrath upon those people, upon those things, upon sin. And we are separated from him because of those things. Galatians 5 says this, verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. He's talking about the acts of our sinful flesh. They're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, and discord. Let me just define discord. It's not the mobile app your teenagers use to communicate with one another, although it, it kind of fits because it sows in a bunch of division. Discord is you're sowing in divisions. Like you're a person who's telling one person a different side of the story and telling someone else a different side of the story, and now they hate each other, and you're sitting in the middle going, I don't know what's going on because you're the one who's sowing all this confusion and discord and misinformation. Jealousy goes on, fits of rage, selfish ambition, only worrying about you and not caring about others. Dissensions, that just means like divisions or groups and factions is another synonym to that. And envy, drunkenness, depending on alcohol, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. If that marks your life, if these things are present in your life, you do not have relationship with God. That's severe. I know. Let me clarify. You can have a relationship, but you are separated. There is an intimacy issue. You are not as close to him as you possibly could be. And if those mark your life, those are the sins that have separated us and caused our Christ, our Lord, Jesus, the Messiah, to have to go to that cross to pay for your sins. Those things, if they mark your life, if they've been a part of your story before you realize how we all are a part of this group. Like all of us are, none of us are exempt from any of these. I don't know how many you check marked, but I checked marked about all of them at one point in time in my life. And just to cheer you up, let's do one more. You guys are all excited. I love this. First Corinthians six says this, or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers. Do you know what slanderers are? Or someone who, who spits or, or spreads slander? Someone who, who gives a false account about someone who's not true. And you might've heard something juicy through the grapevine and you went ahead and just kind of perpetrated or shared and then, and then realized, well, that was false. That wasn't real. I just kind of went with what was popular and cool. I kind of Facebook shared that or I went with the rhetoric or the, the ideology or the theory and I just went with it because I thought it was true. I didn't really do my own research. That's slander. And when you, when, when you share a negative report about somebody, it isn't true. Slander also looks like this. Even when it is true about the person, but you share it with someone who doesn't need to know that information and you share that negative report about them, that is slander. Nor swindlers, he goes on, will inherit the kingdom of God. Are you encouraged? <laughs> if I did something very you know, awkward and weird, and if I asked you to raise your hand or even stand up, if one of these has marked your life, is evident in your life, or is part of your story, I would bet all of us would put a hand up. And then we could look around, wherever we're watching this, and look and see, man, there's a bunch of losers right now around me. 
And you're right, we all are. We're all equal on this same playing field because sin has plagued us. It's a part of our flesh. It's part of kind of who we are and what we experience here on earth. And so the good news starts with us recognizing we are depraved of good and we will never be able to do enough to clean ourselves up to, to, to get ourselves to a place to where we would deem ourselves righteous enough to be accepted by God, you'll never get there. And when Jesus says it is finished, that was his final words on the cross. What he's saying is I have done this once and for all for you. I have cleansed you. I've made you clean. I've forgiven you. And now I will cover you. I will be the silhouette so that when the father looks at you, he sees me on your behalf and I take your sin and I give you my righteousness. And so Jesus makes these claims that he has power over sin and over death. And they're just claims unless he actually comes back from the grave. Think about it. Anyone on the face of the planet could claim they have power over sin and death. They could claim all these teachings and they could say, I'm gonna die for you. And they could die for you. And that would be the end of it. And they would never come back. And we would really never know, was he? Was it true? Any human could do that. But the fact that he came back to life, the resurrection, that's why it's so important that he did to prove that all of this was true. Everything that he was claiming is absolutely true. It's kind of like this, an electronic money transfer. Like if I was gonna tell you, hey, I'll give you a million dollars. I'm good for it. I got a million dollars coming your way. You'd be like, that's amazing, right? But it's just a claim that I can give you a million dollars until what? Until the money wire transfer actually goes through. There's a there's authorization, verify the account, and then it shows up in your bank account as money that you can use at your expense. And now the claim actually becomes a reality and you can actually cash in and reap the reward or the benefit of that. The same thing is true with Jesus and the resurrection. He's claiming all these things, but all these claims don't mean nothing if we actually don't have access to cash in on what he's claiming. And the resurrection proves it all, that he is who he says that he is, and what he came to do, he finished, he did it, and he conquered sin, and he conquered death, and you can have freedom. You can trust it, you can cash in on it, you can reap the reward or the benefit of that. And the resurrection isn't just this, you know, the resurrection of Christ isn't just some theory, isn't just some, you know, idea. It's a literal, literal historical event that's well documented. And in scripture, we see it as well documented. And he revealed himself to hundreds of people to just prove it. And he revealed himself to his disciples to assure them and then they would go and they would not deny what they had seen, the risen savior. And this movement of Christianity of Jesus followers would explode across the known world. And because of what he did, we can read verse 11 in 1 Corinthians 6. He was talking about being adult, you know, sexually immoral, adulterer, thieves, men who have sex with men. You have no inheritance with the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and that is what some of you were. That's what I was. That's what some of us are right now. But if you follow Christ, you were washed. You were sanctified. Sanctified just means you are being made more like Jesus. You're being made righteous. It's a process. And you were justified means that you were made right, like legally, like a stamp, a pardon in courtroom. You are pardoned from every evil thing, everything that's ever marked your life that was sinful. You are justified because of Christ in the name of Lord Jesus and by the spirit of God. That might have been you, but now you're clean, you're washed, you're forgiven, you're justified, you're sanctified, and you now have access. 
you've now cashed in on what he had offered and what he had claimed if you've made that step by faith. And the whole entire book of Mark has been pointing to this question, who is Jesus to you? We've been studying this for 50 weeks so that we can wrap our head around this question and come to a conclusion and make our decision, who is he? The whole entire book of Mark has been leading to this moment. The entire Bible, if you read the totality of the Bible, you'll see it screams Jesus. It screams this moment in human history all throughout its pages. And one part of this story has a small part. This guy named Joseph of Arimathea, it's not an insignificant part, has a part in this story. And you might have heard of him. Because if you read the gospels, you read about the, the crucifixion and resurrection, you know that there was this guy who took the body. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. He was a rich man and he put him in his tomb. You might've heard that, but I want to pause and I want to dive in. But I wanted to recap the gospel, to level the playing field, to realize that we're all fallen short. And let's look at Joseph and see how we can see us in this story. He's mentioned in all four gospels. It's kind of a big deal. And I wanna take a look at his life and, and him as a person, because I think he's the epitome of the kind of people that Jesus came and died for and resurrected for. And, and us coming out of a turbulent two years with racial tension, the pandemic, we got division politically and division and factions and dissensions and discord and craziness and sexual morality and men having sex with men and all this craziness that we've navigated in our culture, especially the last two years. I think there's something profound we can pull from this. And navigating cancel culture, I think we can pull from this. And so why is he mentioned? Why is Joseph Arimathea even mentioned? Why is it so important? Because we think about death. We think about when someone dies, what do we do with them? We bury them. So we're probably just glossing over and thinking, well, obviously Jesus had to be buried somewhere. So God just used this guy, insignificant, whatever, to put his body in the tomb. But the reality is, is crucified people didn't get buried. Roman citizens couldn't even be crucified. Like you had to be an enemy of the state, like a real bad dude, not even a citizen of Rome to get crucified. And when you got crucified, you didn't get a fancy tomb or a proper burial. Your body got thrown on the garbage heap. And then the wild dogs would come and the vultures would come and just pick and eat that away. And by three days, it'd be completely gone. So if there's no Joseph, there's no resurrection. If he didn't do what he, would, what he did, we wouldn't be able to have the risen Savior, he's kind of a big deal. We need to look into this guy. And what's really cool about this guy is he fulfilled a Old Testament prophecy, a very specific one. I'm gonna read it, Isaiah 53, verse eight through nine. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. They're referencing Jesus. Yet, who of his generation protested, right? The disciples didn't protest, they all ran and fled. For he was cut off from the land of living, he was killed. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, wicked people, criminals, crucified, thrown on the garbage heap. But, and he was rich and with the rich in his death. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was supposed to be thrown on the garbage heap, the grave of criminals but he was actually given a grave of a rich man. Profound. Joseph Arimathea, he's fulfilling a prophecy that how could he orchestrate this? I mean, how, like, it's like they think about it. They get a conference together and like, you know what? Well, we got to make sure all these like, well, prophecies. And Jesus fulfilled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And Joseph Arimathea fulfills this crazy, very specific 
prophecy because he was a rich man who offered up his tomb to where he would be buried with the rich. This is just another proof that all throughout scripture, Jesus had been foretold about in great detail. The whole entire Bible points to Jesus. Another cool thing about this Joseph guy is he got to be the first step in the exaltation of Jesus. Exalting means just worshiping, glorifying, or reinstating into like power and authority, right? Exalting, you know, raising them up. And so Jesus, when he came, he came how? As a baby. And where was he put? In a manger, a feeding trough. If you know Philippians 2, right, it it talks about humility. It talks about humility. And Jesus came to humble, and he humbled himself to the lowliest of lows, to a servant. He even humbled himself to death on a cross. So the Savior of the universe, God in human flesh, where did he enter the world on day one? A manger, the most humble place you could possibly bring the Messiah. And then on his last day on earth, where was he put? In a tomb of the rich, exalted, kind of almost royalty now, prepping him to go and be at the right hand of the father forevermore. Joseph got to play a part in the exaltation of Jesus. And you might be thinking, whoa, that's so cool. I never knew that biblical history. That's so crazy. It's pretty cool information. You're right. But God didn't put it in the Bible so that we would know cool biblical history. He put it in the Bible so that we would live differently. And I think he wants to do something profound in and through us with our time together. So I'm gonna look at Joseph, his life. I don't have any fancy points today. We're just gonna dive in and look at this story and look at his life. And hopefully God will reveal some truths to us. And to do that, we're gonna look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, because he's mentioned in all four of them. And we're gonna pull from all of them and put this story together and see where we land. I want to start in Matthew 27, when it talks about, uh, you know, Joseph Arimathea, and it says this, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, notice he is rich, named Joseph, who was also a disciple, highlight, underline that, he was rich, and he was a disciple, and he went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus, two things, he was a rich man, and here's the reason I think that's significant, a lot of us in modern culture, get judgmental towards rich Christians. Because we go, well, if, if you were rich, how can you be rich? Because you should give all your money away to the poor. Well, obviously it's noted here that this guy was rich and you can be rich. It might be harder for you to be rich and be a Christian, but you can be. And then he had become a disciple. It's not that he would become a disciple or he was in process, he was a disciple. Now let's go to Mark 15. 42 to 47, which is where we are in our Mark journey. Let me read this section about him. And when evening had come, after he was crucified and he was dead, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member, underline that, of the council, respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Look at this. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Sometimes in scripture, when it's written, it's important, but sometimes what's not written in scripture can be important too. 
And you've realized the two women were there, Mary and Mary, the two Marys, they were there. But who wasn't there? Through this whole process of Joseph getting permission, getting the body, prepping the body, taking it to the tomb, putting him in the tomb, rolling the stone, who was it there? The other 11 disciples. They're, they're AWOL. They're still not around. They fled the night that he was arrested and they still ain't around. But the two women are there, which is crazy to think about. And we're going to go into this more detail next week about women in that day and age and culture, their testimony wouldn't even be valid in court a lot of times. So why would Jesus allow, God allow two women to see and be the witness of where the body was laid? And what's crazy about the disciples being AWOL, like if you remember John the Baptist, he was the guy who like paved the way for Jesus. He was this prophet who paved the way. When he was beheaded, his disciples, his followers went back and got the body and gave him a proper burial. Jesus' disciples, nothing. AWOL, except this guy, one. And he wasn't even part of the original 12. So Joseph, he was a rich man. He was a disciple. The third thing I want us to see is he was a respected member of the council. We just read it, Mark 15, at the beginning. He said, And when evening had come, since it was day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It takes a lot of courage for you to go ask Pilate, for the man that the, your council that you're a part of just, just uh, you know, put him to death, had him murdered. And you show him and say, no, that's my boy. That's my guy. That's my main man. I'm one of his followers. He probably didn't say that verbatim, but he's like, I, I want to give him the proper burial that he deserves. Take some courage to, to go and do that. And he was a prominent member. He wasn't just a member. He was a prominent. He was a respected member of the group that just accused Jesus of blasphemy and had him executed by the Romans. And we learn from Luke's account that in, in, when they were accusing him and putting him on trial, we learned that he did not consent. He did not agree with the decision of the council. He, he kind of hid in the corner. He probably never spoke up. And here's what it says in Luke 23, where this trial is happening. We get this information about Joseph. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. It goes on to say a lot of the same things we read in Mark. He did not consent to their decision into their action. He didn't speak up. Well, I know it doesn't say he didn't speak up, but how do you know he didn't speak up? Let's go back to Mark 14, where Jesus was actually on trial. And it says this. Well, let me set it up. He's in in trial. The chief priests, they're asking him questions. And eventually Jesus says, yeah, you say that I am the Messiah. You say that I am the son of God. And the chief priest rips his robe, rips his clothes and says, enough. Like, what more do you need? This is blasphemy. And, And verse 64 of Mark 14 says, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? He's talking to the council, the Sanhedrin, the religious elite. What's your decision? What should we do with this guy? And they all underline, all condemned. Joseph is a part of this group and they all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him and they blindfolded him and they struck him with their fist and said, prophesy. And they gave him to the guards to be beat. He didn't speak up. All of them condemned 
He didn't try to like, hey guys, let's, let's like just be a little bit more gentle on him. Yeah, maybe you can still kill him, but like let's be respectful and not beat him and spit on him. And they started to do that and he didn't intervene. He didn't try to rationalize or logically try to protect. He, he was a prominent member. He was respected. He probably had some influence and some pull. He just sits back and he lets that happen. And when we think about a denial of Jesus, who do we think of? Peter. And we just talked, I got the privilege of, of walking us through that, you know, the end of last year. And that's like the most prominent denial that we know of in scripture. But I would say this one's a little worse. I mean, yeah, Peter was in the courtyard and he was just kind of there at the trial while they were condemning and insulting him. But Joseph's there while they're beating him and striking him and spitting on him. And he's got some money. He's got some power. He's got some influence. You would think if he was a true Jesus follower, he would have spoken up and maybe not you know, rewritten it to where it got him off to where he didn't die, but at least made his experience maybe a little bit more pleasant and not being ridiculed as much as he was. This denial seems worse. How could he keep quiet if he's a true Jesus follower? Let's go to John 19, another piece of the puzzle of why he kept quiet and didn't speak up, even though he disagreed to their action and their decision. John 19, 38 says later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. He went and he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. He feared his fellow council members. He feared his fellow co-workers. He feel, feared the people that he was around in his culture all the time. And he was a cowardly Christian. He just stayed back in the shadows and didn't speak up. He knew, he disagreed, he had authority, but he kept silent. At least Peter just watched as he was accused. Joseph watched as he was beaten and spit on. And if I had to compare the two denials, I would say this one's probably worse. So Joseph of Arimathea, he's rich. He's a disciple of Jesus. He's a respected member of the council. He disagreed with their decision and he didn't speak up. And if we would go back in time and be there in this culture, it would probably be hard for us to say he was a true follower of Jesus. It would be hard for us. A lot of times we wanna give Peter and even this guy, Joseph, a bad rap and say, how could you? I can't believe it. Can't believe you would disown the guy that you spent three years around. It seems crazy. And then what about the other 11 that are running? We look at these guys and say, you're a bunch of losers and a bunch of screw ups. And you're right, they are. But so are we. We're no different than them. We coward when confronted. Cancel culture will silence us because we're afraid to speak up. We see an injustice and we just go, nah, maybe not my fight. We see, we see things going on in this world and, and we let culture influence us and we justify our behavior and we give in to sin and we do things and we know it's not right, but we do it anyway and we're no different than them. Well, that's why we can look at churches and there's this idea of like perfection that's been placed on people. And the reality is, is Christians can become very judgmental and full of hypocrisy. And people look at the church and go, I want nothing to do with you people. It's because we're sinful. We all are. We're all on the same playing field. We're losers and screw ups. And we've blown it just like these disciples who we would look at and say, how could they? And we need to be really honest with ourselves. They were pretty sucky disciples for about three years. But the reality is, is when you first came to know Jesus, I bet there were some seasons in your life where you didn't make it match up or do what you should have done or was called to. I know that's me. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll realize that we're no different 
than those people around us. We're no different than them. In, an age of, in the age of rage that we've talked about through this series, there's so many dissensions and factions and discord and, 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 and dis, disunity, and we sow that in, and we get mad and, and have anger issues. In a culture that's got a cancel culture society, we cowered in fear because of our coworkers or our bosses or our families and what they might think of us if we live this out. And there's a culture marked by division and we choose sides and we become more loyal to the side and the ideology more to the Bible and Christ than what he's calling us to. We're living in an age marked by fear that we feel paralyzed and we just go along to get along and we scatter and run like the 11 disciples or we may deny when confronted with it. And if we're honest, if we remember the list from the beginning, when it talked about fits of rage, people who don't have an inheritance with God, those who are separated from God, the sin that Christ had to go to the cross and pay for, fits of rage, anger, drunkenness, sexual immorality, dissension, slander, greed, jealousy, selfish ambition, all of our hands would go up and say, that's me. Yes, check the box, check the box, check the box. That's part of my story. That may be part of who I am right now. We're no different. And I think all of these boil down into one thing and it's pride. And I think pride is killing us all. We think we know best, my truth, do what I want, selfish desires, me, 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 pride. It's the number one thing that drives us to have all these other fits of rage, anger, drunkenness, sexual mind, dissension, slander, greed, jealousy, all of that I think is rooted in pride. And I think pride is the number one thing that will keep you out of heaven. I think pride is the number one thing that will keep you from having a true, authentic relationship with Jesus, the savior of the world, your creator. Because you become self-absorbed and you think it's about you. And then you might even step across the line and, and put your faith in Jesus. But if pride is still a part of your life, sin will be evident. And you'll become judgmental and, and full of hypocrisy. And you'll start to place a higher bar on other people thinking you got to meet what I'm doing. Like I'm almost perfect, man. I'm, I'm crushing it. And you, and you put this higher bar on everybody else. And that's not what true Jesus followers would do. You humble yourself like Christ did. Like we talked about Philippians 2 to the point of a servant. And he went to the cross humbly for you. And he's calling us to put aside our pride. Do you realize that God hates pride. Like he's at war, at battle with pride. He gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And that word is like a, a, a very strong word for in battle, war against. Pride's the number one thing that will keep you out of heaven and keep you out of a relationship with him. And a lot of times, especially if we've been following Christ longer, you know, longer than others, we can get puffed up on our pride and think it becomes about us. And look at all the money that I'm giving. Look at all the time that I'm serving. Look at how much Bible I'm reading. Look at all the good that I'm doing, but you still have pride and you still have other sin in your life. And, the, and here's the thing. We think we, we, we have the right to judge people. We don't have the right to judge people. And we think sometimes that we need to judge people into submission or into obedience. No, we need to love them into repentance. Love them, accept them, and realize Man, for three years, these, these disciples, they sucked. They blew it all the time. They didn't match up to the level of expectation that Jesus was calling them to. Me, as a young Christian, I didn't match up. And if people would have wrote me off and judged me, I probably would have flaked and left. People loved me. They prayed for me, I'm sure. They, 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 they tolerated me. They accepted me. They didn't accept my sin. They accepted me. And I can be here today because I had people in my 
life. And I think about how I've blown it, and I think about it, how I've, I've messed up and I've fallen short, and I'm sure you and I both can relate, and we have that a part of our story. And you may put your faith in Jesus and accept that free gift of salvation on the cross, and it's available, and you have access to it through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But you still may blow it sometimes, and you still may fall short. And you got to realize that you'll never be perfect. No one will ever be perfect. There was only one who was perfect who can make you perfect in God's eyes if you will let him cover your life and give it completely over to him and swallow our pride daily and stay humble. And you know what made the difference in my life? Because for so long, I, 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 I believe I accepted Christ at a young age but I was still full of me. What Myron wanted, what he wanted to do, his dreams, his goals, I would use and manipulate people for my own benefit and gain to try to climb this, the ladder of success. I would, I, I would manipulate and use women for sexual pleasure. I get addicted to pornography and masturbation, but I was still under the umbrella of I'm a Jesus follower. I would say I'm a disciple, but I was far from it. And what made all the difference in my life was people that loved me. And there was one guy, his name was Ben. And I'll be forever grateful for my buddy Ben, still one of my best friends to this day. Finally, I had somebody I could confess to, I could talk to, I could, I could share this burden with, and I could get right. I had someone to hold me accountable and keep me straight. And then I met Emily, who's now my wife, who was my girlfriend, then fiance, and we weren't perfect. We were not we moved in together, had sex before we were married, but she was somebody who encouraged me. We were convicted, knew it was wrong and made a commitment. We were gonna get better and, and, and be more disciplined and be more honoring to God. And we did that. And then I had a mentor, Chris, who looked me in the eye and called me out on my crap and said, this is not who you're supposed to be. You're not living the way you are. You're claiming to be a Christian, but you have hypocrisy in your life and highlighted and called me out, but loved me. And I was able to confess and invite accountability. And that's exactly what life groups can do and are designed to do. That's why those pamphlets exist. That's why the online signup exists so that you can invite people who love you and won't judge you and condemn you, but invite you through love to repentance, confession, accountability, and freedom in your life. Because we're all broken. We're all unqualified. We're all undeserving, but just like Joseph, God will use you to accomplish a greater purpose in your life. In spite of your shortcomings, in spite of your failures, in spite of your fear, in spite of your insecurities, he came and he died for those to give you freedom from those and give you a purpose to make your life come alive and live for something bigger than yourself. And I encourage you, if you don't have people, the right people make all the difference. Get plugged in with some people. And if you give your life over to him, I'm, it's not gonna be perfect. And you won't be perfect. You never will. But your life will begin to come alive and it will be full of purpose. And so stay humble because pride will kill you. We do not cast judgment, but we love people into repentance. We accept the world around us, not their sin, the people and we care for them and we serve for them and we sacrifice for them because exactly what Christ did on our behalf. And that's what he's calling us to. And I don't know where you are. I don't know what boxes you're checking right now currently in your life from that list that we went over. But what I think what Jesus is calling you today is do the right thing next. Do the next right thing. Heal a relationship, move out, stop having sex with him or her. 
Clean up your mouth and your tongue and the way you talk. Clean up your search history and your browsing and where you go with pornography. Clean up your marriage and sacrifice and submit and continually give yourself over to that person completely. Doesn't matter where you are. Do the next right thing. Swallow your pride. It will kill you. Humble yourself and be everything that God made you to be. And if you've never accepted that gift of salvation on the cross, today's your day. He's good for it. He's paid for it all. Just like that money transfer, his claims are good. Cash in on it. Take it to the bank and begin your journey of freedom. And don't do it alone. Come down, pray, or come pray with us. Let us know. Send us a comment or in the chat. Let us know and we will reach out to you and we'll care for you and we'll bite you in and hold you accountable to living the life God's gonna call you to live. And if you're a longtime Christian and you're still living in sin and still got these things evident in your life, do you have someone to confess it to? A community of believers who will love you, support you, champion you, and encourage you and rid out the hypocrisy in your life. Wherever you are, take your next step. Do the next right thing. Father, I thank you for what you did and what you're currently doing in our lives. And God, I pray that no matter where we are and what we've done and, and how much shame and guilt we feel, we, we would realize that's not from you, but there's freedom found in you and that we would place our faith, total faith in you, that you would become Lord of our life. You would forgive us, we would receive that and you would begin a journey of freedom and healing. And God, help us to be able to find the right people because they make all the difference and, and invite them in for confession and accountability and build, build us up to be everything you've created us to be and live a life full of purpose that you wanna give us. Because regardless of how disqualified and broken we are, you have a greater plan and a greater purpose in store for us. And you will use broken, unqualified people to fulfill your will. And we just pray that you would do that. And we live expectantly that you would do that. And God, I pray for healing and I pray for inspiration and I pray you would lead and guide us and you would call us to be your church. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.